Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If this is your first time listening, I am stoked to have you here. If you've listened to the show before, you might notice that I am not Sam Matla. As Sam mentioned in the previous podcast, we'll be sharing the podcast duties from here on out. I'll be handling most of them, but he'll be picking up a few here and there. Doing this will allow us to keep a regular release schedule, meaning you all will get to hear from more producers and industry experts. So with that, I appreciate you all tuning in, and I can't wait to help you grow as a producer with the EDM Podcast. So in this episode, I have a chat with Jay Pryor. Now, Jay Pryor is a house music producer who currently releases on Positiva, which is underneath the Universal Umbrella. It's home to artists like Tiesto, Avicii, Marshmello, and a ton more. Jay got his first big break co-producing Steve Aoki's track, Just Hold On, which currently has over half a billion streams online. Since helping produce that record, he's released official remixes for artists like Niall Horan, Zane, Bastille, and a ton more. Outside of his high-profile remixes, he's racked up millions of streams with his original releases. He just released a track called Finding Our Way, which all of you should check out right after this episode is over. Now in this episode, we really dive deep into his background, looking at how a kid from Dublin with zero connections worked his way up to signing with a major label and producing for some of the biggest artists on the planet. We talk about how he got into music production, why he's glad he took a gap year after high school to focus on music, getting rejected a lot early on and how he dealt with that rejection, as well as how he organically gained the attention of several major labels. We also chat about his production workflow, how he approaches layering, his keys to a clean and big mix down, as well as his best advice for newer producers. This is a longer interview, but trust me, you will not want to miss any minute of it. For those of you listening, feel free to hit me up anytime to talk about the podcast, production, or just about anything in general. My email is connor at edmprod.com. That's C-O-N-N-O-R at edmprod.com. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the EDM Podcast with Jay Pryor. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Jamie, who goes under the name Jay Pryor. Jamie, how are you doing today, man? I'm good, man. How are you? Thanks for having me, by the way. Of course. Appreciate the time. So as always, I'd like to just start with a bit of your background with music. Feel free to go back as far as you'd like, but I'd love to learn what got you into music and more specifically, what got into producing. Yeah. So I was always kind of into, uh, I would say, kind of geekier stuff. Um, through school, I was doing, I was making YouTube videos and, um, I was literally like playing Call of Duty and like editing clips of my, um, my gameplay together and then, uh, putting it on YouTube and, uh, it kind of just like started there. Um, and I became really interested in like digital interfaces. Um, so I was doing like um, video editing on like After Effects, Sony Vegas, that sort of thing. And then, um, it then kind of morphed into graphic design and I started designing graphics for like other gamers, like my friends and stuff. And yeah, from there I kind of like built a little, a little business out of it. And, uh, (laughs) like through my school years, that's kind of how I funded like lunches and, um, all of that sort of crack. And um, I, I just realized I said crack, but it means something completely <laughs> different in Ireland. <laughs> so that's the translation sound. in the bottom. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, crack, crack in Ireland is like 
uh, I don't know, stuff. Um, but yeah, all of that sort of stuff. And then, um, yeah, I kind of like when I was thinking about uh, university and what I wanted to do going into university, um, I kind of like, I didn't really want, I, I kind of realized I didn't want to do design or anything like sort of, I was thinking about visual communications and those sort of courses. And um, I kind of just like realized that it wasn't what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. Um, I loved doing it, but I couldn't see myself doing it um, for the rest of my life. So I had always been really passionate about music and um, when I was younger, I, I had a little band and like a really terrible band, but um, <laughs> uh, it was a band nonetheless. And uh, yeah, I, I had always been quite interested in music. My mom played piano and uh, she kind of tried to teach me a little bit here and there. But yeah, it wasn't until I went on my sixth year holiday, which is... Um, I don't even know if you do this in America, but no. um, it's like a holiday that you go on. It, it, it's probably like similar to spring break, I'd say. So, um, how old were you then? Uh, nineteen. So, um, you you just finished school. Most people are eighteen or nineteen. Um, it's when you just finish like school and you're about to go into college. Um, and yeah, everyone just goes on a big. Uh, like trip uh, like literally there was probably 200 Irish people um, on my trip so it's like everyone from all of your friends at schools your school you all just go together and and go on this big fun trip and um, yeah so I went on that trip and I saw Calvin Harris perform <laughs> at a club called BCM in Mallorca in uh, Magaluf okay. and um yeah, man. I just, I just remember being like, "Fuck!" Like, it was, it was such a moment of clarity for me. Like, I really remember just, just kind of, yeah, just thinking to myself, "I would love to do that." Was electronic dance music a part of your life before then? Because um, I'm guessing you grew up in Ireland, right? Yeah, yeah. So it was like, but that was kind of under my own sort of, um, like, it was because I was doing the internet stuff. So like I, w I was hanging around with Irish kids and I was, you know, in school in Ireland. So all my mates were Irish, but, um, I was hanging out and speaking with people online. So I was kind of influenced by their music taste and not just things that Irish kids were listening to. So, um, I actually was friends with a lot of people in the UK and they got me into like UK garage and stuff. Um, and then that kind of formed into a love for drum and bass. Um, so I was like really into UK Garage and drum and bass for like a while. And then it turned into like Liquid DMB. And um, I started following YouTube channels like Liquidity and UKF and all these types of different channels. Um, and then my interests kind of swayed to more like uh, ambient chill, more like beats. Do you remember like Majestic Casual, that channel? Yeah. I yeah, mean, well, that was strong. in its prime, man. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a sick channel. But when that was like in its prime with like all the all the red light stuff and um all sorry, all that sort of, all those sort of artists. Um yeah. that's when I really got into that sort of music. And 
yeah, that was probably just around the time that I went on that school trip. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, when I got back from that trip, I downloaded FL Studio. Actually, no, I downloaded Logic because I didn't know how to boot camp my laptop. And I was I had a Mac at the time. Yeah. And you had to boot camp it in order to um, download FL Studio. So I used Logic for a while, which everything sounded terrible on. But <laughs> for me, <laughs> I had no idea yeah. how to use it. I just feel like the learning curve with Logic is so much more than either Ableton Live or FL. Yeah, I just I feel like the the interfaces that I was used to we're more like FL Studio. They're more kind of friendlier, I guess. And like, I, I found that like Sony Vegas was yeah. similar to FL Studio in a way because just like where everything was positioned and stuff. And I used to do a lot of audio work in Vegas. So I understood what like EQing was and like reverbs and echo, like all this sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So that was really your first time that you got into production was when you were about like 18, 19. Yeah, exactly. It's when I, when I got back from that trip. Yeah. You mentioned earlier that you were in a shitty band in high school. So did you, were you like playing instruments growing up? Like, did your mom uh, successfully convince you to learn how to play the piano? Um, not really. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> I was, I, I played drums actually. I played drums for like three years. I had lessons for about a year. It, yeah. Kind of my first year, but I, I was always really into drumming. I used to watch like loads of drummers online, like the covers and stuff you see on YouTube, like the Matt yeah. McGuire's and all those guys. Um, he had, he probably wasn't around at that time, but, um, <laughs> those sort of guys. <laughs> um, and I was always infatuated by all of that. Um, so I, I really wanted to try out drumming and I begged my dad for months to get me like this, this really small drum pad. It was like, there was like four pads on it and you could like um, assign different instruments to each pad. And then you had your, obviously your drumsticks and um, yeah, he eventually one day after school surprised me with that drum pad machine. And I was like, I literally wore that thing, thing to the ground. Like I played it every single day to the point where I was breaking sticks. I was breaking the, I literally <laughs> broke the machine. Like the machine broke. That's how much I used to use it. Um, and then when that broke, he had kind of seen how much of an interest I had in it. I think it was kind of a test for him. He was like, I'll get him the, the cheaper, the cheaper drum pad thing. And then if he's really into it, I'll get him like a proper kit. And, um, it broke around my birthday time. So I think it was like my 12th birthday. Maybe my dad got me a, a drum kit. So we went into Dublin city and I got to pick out a kit, which was really cool. So kind of on that note, would you say your parents were like generally supportive of all your random like creative interests growing up in terms of the like video editing, then obviously getting to music later? Oh, uh, like, uh, like, dude, my parents have been the most supportive parents that I could have asked for. Like, honestly, um, when I was younger, they would encourage, they encourage anything, like anything that I wanted to do, they would say, they would encourage it. Like I used to be really into art. So they got me art classes. They paid for art classes and I went and um, sat with like a professional artist and they taught me how to like different techniques and stuff like that. And then I had like an interest in, as I said, graphic design and they bought me like a Wacom tablet and stuff. Um, mm. And then like the drums, obviously 
they supported that too. But not only financially, like they just they're just super encouraging and yeah, they're 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 really great, man. Like they're really, really, really supportive in that regard. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense given the amount of things that you were into growing up from the creative side. And I think a lot of it at that age just comes with confidence. And like I talked to a lot of producers that don't have that for many reasons, one of them being growing up, they just didn't have that support system. But that's always something that you can kind of develop later, which is good to keep in mind. Yeah, no, like, don't get me wrong. Like, it wasn't all sunshine and rainbows. Like, there were, like, yeah. other things and all. But as with every family, you know. But um, with in that regard, like, my parents are so supportive. And, like, yeah, I'm, I'm super, super grateful for that. So moving back, you downloaded Logic, hated it, downloaded FL, which I think is the story of how many producers got here. Um, yeah. What was what were those kind of next steps for you? Did you end up going to uni? Um, I did actually, yeah, because at this point in my life, I'm kind of 18, 19 years old and my parents are like, okay, we've supported you, but like, what do you want to do with your life? Like, what's what's the crack here? Like, And yeah. I'm there being like, I've just started making music. All my beats sound terrible, but I want to be a music producer. <laughs> and they're like, um, okay, but like, yeah, you've only just started doing this. So like, I can only imagine in their head what they're thinking. They're like, oh no, like, what's he going to do? Are we going to be like, is like, what's going to happen basically? Yeah. So they encouraged me to sign up for a college course. And um, actually, do you know what? Before that, I took a year out. So okay. they're like, you can take a year out and do this and see how you get on. And um, after that, you can sign up for a college course and go to college um so i had a year where i literally 16 hours a day was just making music uh watching tutorials but that was the time in my life where like i literally like well i still kind of do those hours too but like it was a time yeah. in my life where i really really was on like uh, a fuse if that makes sense like i was really really pushing myself every day to consume as much knowledge as possible and, and really pushing myself to prove to my parents that this is something that I really, really want to do. One question on that is like, what gave you that fire? Because I don't know, for a lot of people, it's like tough to have the energy to find that much time. So like, what do you feel yeah. like was like driving you in that first stage? What drove me was just like that. Like I kept thinking back to that night in Spain, uh, watching Calvin Harris. And like, even to this day that runs through my head, like, every day i just like yeah. there are shows that i've played that are bigger than the ones that i went to of his but like it was just the impact that he left on me yeah. i don't think i'll be fulfilled until i know that i'm leaving that impact on as many people as possible so that's the fire in me that burns and in that stage in my life i definitely like i was watching a lot of live streams i was watching a lot of like the ultra live streams and that sort of thing and like sort of getting as much inspiration as I could from that to drive me to do these highly um, engaging 16 hours, 16 hour days. I see so many producers, myself included, make that mistake where after about a year or two of producing, they just forget to feed the well of inspiration where like those yeah. things that initially got them into music are so far and distant that they kind of reject it. One thing that I did that I've seen a lot of people do is they get to this point where they're like, you know what? I'm not going to any more shows until I'm the person on the other side of that stage, which mm. like at, at surface level kind of makes sense, but you're losing all that inspiration. Like I think, you know, you said you were into like drum and bass and 
like garage music growing up, but it was that concert that made you feel something different. It was the context of saying, wow, this is what dance music is. It's being at a show. Yeah. It's like cold to stream on Spotify, but for most people it's that show experience. So one thing that I learned is you have to continue feeding that well of inspiration, whatever that might be. If what inspires you to produce is shows, you got to be going to more shows. So at this point I force myself to go to two, three shows a month because I know I need that to have the energy and motivation to write. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, like I'm not going to lie. There's like at this point in my kind of life or career, I'm like, there's show the shows I won't go to because I, I say to myself, like, I only want to go to that when I'm playing it, like you said before, but yeah. like, I'll still go to like shows that I know I won't be playing and stuff because and get inspiration from that. So shows like, like I go to a lot of tech house events and um, I go to like really like interesting events that like I'd normally um, might not go to or like um, might not be at because the events that I kind of go to are normally because I'm sort of playing the event and then I'll hang out after or whatever. Yeah. Um, And they're normally like kind of like, more like dancier events and stuff. So I try and go to events that are a bit far away from that, if that makes sense. But totally. it's it's generally the same idea. Like I, I do get inspiration from those events. So one thing that I want to go back on is that gap year that you took. There's something to be said about having unlimited free time to be able to spend on music. So how important do you feel like that gap year was for you to get from just downloaded FL studio to being able to professionally release music. Um, I think it was one of the most important years that I ever had because, um, as I said before, I just literally knuckled down and learned so much in that year. Um, there was like, when I started like maybe, um, six months before I even took the year out, there were a lot of my friends that were doing it as kind of a hobby or, um, whatever, but they, they didn't sort of take that leap of faith and really knuckle down and treat it as like almost a job without like getting paid sort of thing. But that's what my mindset was. And I feel like because I entered that mindset, I learned so much because I was just literally treating it like a full-time job. Um, I was like, (laughs) like literally treating like a full-time job because I was like on government benefits and, um, I, I had the time basically. So in that year, I I just kept kind of going for it. I started like getting a bit more confident with my own music um, and what I was creating. And yeah, I had probably two instances that really stood out to me in that year. One was uh, my first ever release, which was actually three, insta- three instances, I would say. Um, my first ever release was with a small, like a very, very, very small label. They were just releasing on Bandcamp, no like Spotify or YouTube or um, yeah. iTunes or anything like that. It was just Bandcamp. And it was like a really like kind of liquid DMB inspired. Um, it, it's kind of like a majestic casual type beat, but it was, um, it was just an interesting, I'll say it was interesting. Like, <laughs> Uh, it wasn't great, but um, that yeah. was my first release. And that really like was a uh, like a standout point for me because I was like, geez, like I can actually release music. Like that's cool. Yeah. Like I've gotten to that level now where I can actually put music out, which is pretty sick. Was that under the uh, Jay Pryor project? Yeah. So, well, no, it was under the name Pryor. 
So it was just prior at that stage. Um, But then maybe like two or three months later, I start like in that time, I started swaying more towards um, like house music. And uh, I started going to a lot of shows, which is kind of, again, where I got the inspiration from for the house year stuff. I started going to sort of like um, house nights, tech house nights, deep house nights and stuff. And um, yeah, I started making that type of music. And my best friend, um, who is actually now my roommate, um, he, uh, uh, him and I released um, my first song under the name Jay Pryor. Um, and he released it under uh, his first name. And uh, so it was a collab. Yeah. Um, and he now goes by the name Fallon, but he was at that time called Enda and it was a song called Breakup and we just sampled um, Milo J Smoke Drink Breakup and yep. just sampled a little bit of that uh, we put it out and that was like another that was kind of the second moment in that year that stood out to me because I kind of realized that well the song did really well like we put I created a brand called Root um, which was going to be like a like a a label and a nightlife brand. So we were going to throw events and we were going to have it as a label too. And yeah, I just created this brand and then put it out through that and did like a download gate or something. And it kind of like, like not blew up, but it did really, really well in Dublin. A lot of DJs in Dublin were playing it, which was like really surprising to me. Yeah. But yeah, that definitely was the sort of second standout uh, thing for me. And then I'd say probably the 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 last standout thing for me in that year was um, another track I released called Skankin, uh, which was my first kind of interaction with major labels. Okay. So, and management actually. So the I found this sample online, which was like Ska Ska Skankin Away um, by this guy called Domzy. And he was a UK rapper or something. And I think I just found it on like, Splices wasn't around at that time. So it was probably just like sample magic or something like that. Yeah, I, I put this song together called Skankin. It was like a really kind of deep house, like bass house almost uh, tune. And it just got like a ton of support. There was like, like the f- my first experience with like a big DJ supporting my songs, um, which I think was like sort of Tiesto played it, I think. And then like Mr. About Measle played it. They're playing it in their sets and stuff. Were you doing promo for it at that point? Not really. I was, I was literally just like creating my own artwork, throwing, uh, uploading it on SoundCloud and then doing like a download gate. Yeah. So I was I honestly like, Beyond that, I was just kind of maybe mailing it to a few DJs and sending it to my friends and posting it on like my social media. But um, to be honest, like it can't like these first few releases were, were just more organic than anything. Um, I think the gates really helped at that point in time because um, obviously SoundCloud and dance music was like kind of popping on set, like popping and um the gates worked really well like if you wanted to download a song you had to follow the person on soundcloud and repost the song so like it's just it kind of worked that way but and then i was getting dms from 
DJs asking for the download and stuff um, in that sense. Um, but that was kind of my first experience with like actual support, you know, not like your your Friday evening club <laughs> DJ, like actual DJs that I would watch on these live streams and stuff. And I was like, damn, like, it's crazy. What was that moment like for you, like mentally? Because I think, you know, you took that gap year, you knew that you had a lot to go and learn with production. You started to get your first ever release on that, you know, exclusive Bandcamp only label. And then you started to get some support. Was that affirming for you? Like, hey, maybe I could do this. Or did you always have that mentality? Yeah, like that's exactly it, man. Like it was just affirming because I kind of just thought I was really crap. And then like these big DJs are playing it and I suddenly had a bit more confidence in myself. Yeah. Um, and I was like, maybe I could actually like release music on like actual labels someday and stuff. And I, I just had a lot more confidence in myself. Um, and then, yeah, the the major label thing and the management thing, like uh, a management or a manager approached me and he was like, I'd love to work with you. I, I run this YouTube channel and it was like quite a big YouTube channel. Um, and I was like, whoa, like I've never had a manager, someone that actually wants to manage my music and this, that and the other. Um, long story short, that relationship didn't really work out. He okay. had kind of, di- he kind of wanted to mold me into what he wanted to work with as opposed to nurture what I already was, if that makes sense. Totally. Or what I wanted. But yeah, then the... The major label thing was there was a, a guy called, um, I can't remember, but there was some guy who released um, a record on Spinning Records um, with the same vocal sample. It was like the Skankin' vocal sample. And it then got a um, like second release, I guess, or like a, um, distributed by Universal. Um, so Universal then emailed me and they're like, oh, we see that you've made a remix of this record. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I, I made this record like six months ago before the other record came out. But uh, yeah, I guess you could call it a remix. And um, they were like, oh, well, we'd love to like make it official and stuff. And I was like, okay, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that that never happened. But like, um, it was cool to get that that level of, sort of affirmation as you said before like it was cool to have major labels reaching out and it kind of let me realize that my music was uh i guess better than i thought it was at that point i don't know i feel like i don't know any music producers that aren't self-conscious to an extent yeah 100 percent. but it's what kind of drives you i guess totally and like so many producers tell me I'm a perfectionist. I'm unique. I'm like, no, every producer on the planet is kind of a perfectionist, at least 99% of them. Yeah. Cause you're like, I'm got this idea in my head and I've got something unique that I need to share. And I've got this perfect thing that I'm going to create. It's like a natural thing. So I feel like most producers, mm-hmm. you know, even successful ones have to learn how to manage that like perfectionist side, knowing when to let go and kind of hold off a bit. Absolutely, man. So with that, um, universal reached out to you did that develop into anything else? Cause I know you're working with them now. So I'd love to hear a bit more about how that relationship kind of developed. Yeah. So like n- nothing really developed from there. Um, I think I spoke to the ANA that released or that, um, reached out to me a couple of times after that, but, um, it was actually another label after that, that were reaching out to me. Um, it was an A&R at Warner called, uh, Billy Weber. 
and he um, was actually he managed and still manages uh, one of my best friends in music, Endor. Um, and he emailed me and he said, um, like, I love this skanking track. I'd love to try and release it. And that kind of never resulted in anything again because the other track had been out and Universal were pushing that really hard. Mm -hmm. So Warner were like, uh, we don't really, we can't do that because like both of the records are kind of conflicting, I guess. Yeah. Um, but I, but like, I guess like from that point, it was more just like me really honing in on my craft and and believing in myself more. Um, and at this point, like I'm going to college and like, um, the year's kind of up, um, and I'm staying in contact with Billy and like, I'm sending him music and stuff and he's giving me feedback and yeah, so I I was in college and it, I kind of just dropped out after like a month (laughs) (laughs) because I dropped out after a month because I was doing it and I felt like um, I wasn't going to let my parents or like basically my parents offered to pay for my university okay, and I didn't feel comfortable letting them pay for something that I in the back of my head knew that I would never use because I like the end goal was always to be like a music producer, or a songwriter, or um, something in the music field. Um, so I, what I was doing was like visual communications or something, or media communications, and it w- it just didn't make sense to me. I felt quite guilty. So like after a month, I think there was a, a period in the course where if you handed in a notice like before a month or something, you could um, leave the course without paying or something like that. So I did that. <laughs> and I continued to uh, message or send tracks back and forth to um, Billy. And yeah, that, that was kind of my first like industry, like A&R that I, I felt comfortable sharing music with and stuff like that. Do you feel like you mentioned earlier that Billy from Warner helps you develop your sound a little bit? I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about that and like what his role was in like helping you get to a point where you were releasing on majors. He actually gave me like a ton of feedback um, on my on the stuff I was releasing at that time, um, and it was kind of like beyond the point of Warner at that stage. He was yeah. kind of just giving me feedback out of the kindness of his heart, just literally yeah. like as a friend. So like, yeah, and we still speak to this day. Like he he's actually like. Um, a really cool guy and like we we've met up now like a ton of times but um i would say like maybe like once a week i'd send him an idea or something and he'd like come back to me a couple of days later and be like oh this is sick you could flesh this up or this up or whatever and that was kind of cool but um what led me to working with majors was wasn't that relationship it was another um, it was kind of an opportunity that I, uh, like I kind of created myself through a remix that I did, which was, um, a remix for an artist called digital farm animals. And basically I was on Instagram just like looking around, you know, yeah. <laughs> doing what Instagram's for. Um, and I stumbled upon this artist called digital farm animals and, 
he had like photos of him up in the studio with Will I Am and like Little Mix and all these like crazy artists. And he had like 3,000 followers or something. And I was like, how has he got like not that many followers? And he's in the studio with all these sick people. Yeah. He doesn't necessarily have like a big hit or anything. Like his music's sick, but like it's not like, like I just didn't understand that. I didn't really understand what I was looking at. I was like, how is this happening? Like I don't, I don't get it. So I tried to DM him and he would not respond. <laughs> like I wasn't getting any response. He's obviously a busy guy. Like, but um, he probably just like didn't see much. Like, you know, he's probably busy. He probably doesn't see like a reason to check his DMs or whatever. Mm -hmm. So I I kind of like, I'm quite stubborn in the fact that like, if there's something that interests me, I want to sort of dive into it. And this was like something that really interested me. And I really felt like I wanted to talk to this person and get some advice. And um, at this point in my career, I felt like I wasn't really moving anywhere. I was kind of just stagnant and... um. I really felt like this is something that interested me because, and he could give me some cool advice. So um, what I did was he had a record out at that time called True, which is still an absolute banger. Um, and he had done remixes, a remix EP for it. And one of the remixes um, had a section in it where like the acapella was, or it was basically just acapella in this certain section. Um, so I took a part out of that and just chopped it up and made my own remix of the record um, put it up on SoundCloud. And at this point I was getting like decent plays on SoundCloud. So I put it up and let it kind of sit there for a week or two so that I could build up some plays. And then when it hit like 200,000 plays or something, I sent it to him and I was like, what do you think of this remix? <laughs> so I, I was kind of like in my head, I was like really tactical about it. I was yeah. like, I wanted to see, wanted him to see that like there was plays on it. So there's more chance that he could reply. Yeah. Um, and also I really wanted the remix to be sick so that he would like listen to it and be like, Oh, this is cool. Like, um, and then we sort of start talking from there. It seems like in everything so far with your production career, there's been this like frustration that you're not where you want to be, whether it's like getting better at production getting not necessarily rejected with your remixes from majors, but not getting them signed, not getting yeah. into his DMS and then taking that, taking that frustration and using that to drive you. A hundred percent. Like you've actually hit the nail on the head there, man. Um, I've all, like, like even now, like, honestly, I don't think there'll be a point in my life where I am not striving for the next goal or the next thing that I want. Um, it's literally embedded in my mindset. Um, I have like, I have like this vision board in front of me right now with like tons of things that I want to achieve in my life. Um, and like, I have words everywhere. I write everything down, like just all these ideas that I have in my head and that I want to achieve someday. And so, yeah, you, you definitely hit the nail on the head with that one. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of people that when they're trying to get better at producing or they're trying to get their first track signed are just really frustrated and I think that's understandable because, you know, if you've been producing for three, four or five years and you're not, your music's not where you want it to be, that can be frustrating. But I think all of the most successful people that I've seen are ones that take that frustration and know how to channel that into something productive. It's really important in production because there are so many things that'll stand in the way between you and achieving whatever those dreams are. The second you become complacent, I think that's when your growth stops 
and then you you know don't get what you want out of it. Hundred percent. I also would add to that to say um, when you do get into those um, scenarios where you kind of feel like you're you're not getting where you want, or like maybe you're rejected from a label or or something like that. That there's other ways around it than the traditional sense, and I think. Um, that's something that I've always really done. Um, like going back on what I was saying about the digital farm animals thing, yeah. like most people would just keep messaging him <laughs> um, and just at that point annoy him and then he's never going to reply. But like, I feel like what I did and what like everyone should be doing is like going above and beyond for those opportunities and those those little things that you you think you could gain value out of. So I guess to ask this question more generally, what advice would you give to that producer who's stuck producing, they're in a rut, and they just haven't gotten to where they want to yet with music? I think like networking is a huge thing. Um, and it's it's often um, not looked at by those producers in that scenario, because at that point, you're just kind of, you're always just trying to make it better make your sound, songs better and yeah. then you, in your head you're like oh once i get to a level like then people start coming to me and stuff but most likely you are at a certain level where people will like your music you just have to get your stuff out there and, and network with people and like one thing that i did when i was um teaching myself to produce and getting my music out there and finally was releasing my own music was um i would go on facebook groups and i would go on reddit and i would go on all these different forums and stuff and i just post my music and yeah hope that like one or two or three or a hundred or whatever amount of people see it um and maybe message me and then i have like another contact i have like another person i can send music to and i have another person that will give me feedback and it's just about building that network and getting sort of a little circle of people around you that you can bounce ideas off and they they can be honest with you and i think that gives you a, a better understanding of where you are with your music and i think it kind of levels you a bit and makes you it makes you understand better like where where you are i guess i think so many producers neglect the importance of networking especially at the like beginner intermediate stage like there's always somebody that is willing to chat with you about music i think it's critical to have people that you can bounce ideas off of and also just to talk about music with, like I've got kind of like a couple different producer group friends and I feel like anytime we're on holiday together, we just chat about like our anxieties with music, what we want to be doing with music. We're not talking technical too often. Yeah. We do that over Facebook messenger all the time, but having both sides of that, I think is crucial just to like get you thinking and immersed in music as much as you can. Absolutely, man. And also I think it makes it more fun. Like it makes it a lot more fun when you've people to share the music with and you know that um, they'll be sending you stuff and you'll be sending them stuff. Um, and also I think that like I learned a lot about music when I was actually giving people feedback and um, almost like teaching other people. Like I don't know how to put it, but like you learn how to listen for what's wrong in a track. Like I think we had... um yeah. Forget who we had on our podcast, but he was talking about, he was like an A&R for Anjuna for a little bit and how good his ears got to be able to dissect why a song is good, but not great. Yeah, man. I think like one thing I did was I started a YouTube channel for like kind of tutorials and remakes and stuff like that. 
and um i just enjoyed speaking about what i was doing like telling people oh i'm going to sidechain this to this or um i'm gonna you know like that sort of thing i, I learned a lot myself by teaching people the things that i was doing it kind of further embedded it into my head so it's like one thing to know how to do something it's another deeper level of understanding to know how to teach it like i experienced that yeah last year i built out a songwriting course and i was always really comfortable with songwriting never really had any problems but to be able to explain every single thing you're doing when writing a chord progression or melody is pretty tough and i feel like by the end of it i understood songwriting so much better after going through it because yeah, I had to force myself like, okay, can you really explain what's going on in a minor seventh chord or a secondary dominant and all these different things? So I think it's like crucial yeah. to have that. And I think going back to what you're saying earlier, having other people to talk to about music with helps with that. Yeah. hundred percent, man. So after you put out that remix for digital farm animals, DM'd him, got a lot of plays. What were the kind of next steps for you and growing? Um, yeah. So like, once I put that out and DM'd him and showed him the record and stuff, he uh, he replied to me and he said um, he'd love to send me the stems um, and try and make it official, um, which was, again, another sick thing for me. I was like, oh, shit, like I could <laughs> potentially get a song out on Universal, yeah. which is like, okay, cool. So I took the stems and like really went in on the remix and like um, really perfected it and um spent hours on it and then sent it back to him and he sent it to his manager or someone who was working on his team at that stage and his manager uh sent me an email and we got speaking um this guy called nick and me and nick got speaking and he said to me that he was going to send it to psycho which is like um do you know simon cowell yeah the like an is, OG American Idol guy. America too? I don't, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, is he, is he on American Idol as well? Wasn't he the Simon Cowell? Like, wasn't he the yeah. grumpy host? Cause I know he was on started? X Factor. Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I had no idea that he was like big in the U S I mean, that's, that's how like, I feel kind of stupid. Now. <laughs> it's okay. That's how he kind of got started. He was on like the first seasons of uh, American Idol checking his wiki. Now I'll get back to you on that later. <laughs> Oh, cool, cool, cool. Yeah, no, because I know he was like on X Factor and stuff like that, but I'm not. Anyways, um, yeah, so his label, Psycho, um, and then they got back to me and or they got back to Nick and then Nick got back to me. We're kind of filtering through that way. Yeah. And they were like, uh, we'd love to like get you out to London. At this point, I was still living in Dublin and they're like, we'd love to get you out to London and discuss music and stuff we really love this remix and we love the sound you have and everything so that was my first meeting with a major and at that point i didn't have any management i had no idea what i was in for so i actually asked nick if he could join me to that meeting i was like because he's based in in london so i was like man would you mind coming to this meeting with me like i know it's kind of weird i know you don't manage me but yeah i'd love if i could just have someone there so i look a tad bit professional and mm-hmm. um yeah I, I guess it was just kind of another thing in my head where like I wanted to appear more professional or more I don't know anyways went to the meeting played a bunch of music I actually produced like two or three original songs the night before the meeting 
because I didn't have any original music. I was just making remixes. And I was like, I can't go into the meeting with just remixes. Good note for people listening to this. When you're starting out, you you can't just have remixes. (laughs) Like if you have a really great remix and an official label hits you up, you need to have originals. That's all they care about. You do. You do. Um, you can't go to a, a label and say, here's this remix. Uh, they'll just be like, um, we didn't release the original song. So why are you, why are you sending this to me? Um, but yeah, no, that was pretty much their reaction in the meeting. Like most of the stuff I played, I was just saying like, this is a remix, but I can turn it into an original. And they were like, like, they didn't really understand. They're like, uh, we've never really like, I'd say like, they don't really get that a lot because most of the, like artists there have meetings with that are like R&B artists or, you know, like yeah. it, it wasn't like dance music was kind of new to the label anyway. And then they had like this kid coming in and being like, like playing them remixes <laughs> and they're like, what? Um, so that meeting kind of went so, so well, actually it went really well, but in a different way. And they were kind of like, listen, like you obviously don't have, enough original music to play us right now but we have some projects that we think you could be good for um in terms of production because um they liked my sound they liked like how sort of my production was or whatever yeah. so um they said um a couple of they mentioned a couple of projects they mentioned like a little mix project um and a louis tomlinson project okay. steve aoki project um and actually that's how that whole Steve Aoki and Louis Tomlinson thing came about was because um, in that meeting, they said, like, we'd love for you to try and work on this and do some production stuff on it. Um, And I was like, yeah, 100%. And when I got back, uh, I asked Nick to email them and get them the parts. And at this point, Nick's essentially my manager. (laughs) But um, yeah, actually, he he still is my manager, which is pretty cool. A little side story. But um, yeah. yeah, he sent the label sent me the parts for the Steve Aoki and Louis Tomlinson song, um, and I just worked on it. Like I can't in my head, I was like, it was going from like making shitty beats in my bedroom to like working on an official song for like two insanely big artists. And in the back of my head, I'm just like, this isn't gonna happen anyway. So like, I'm just gonna get creative and like do try and just like at least impress the label. Um, so that I might get some more opportunities with projects. Um, so I did give them my best and, um, obviously, um, and then sent it back to them and they replied like 30 minutes later and they were like, yeah, we want to use this. And I was like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? I was like, zero to um, it was like real quick. Mental. Oh man. It, like I remember just literally reading that email and, and I was actually in, I think I was in my manager's house, like I was in Nick's house or something. Um, and we got that email and I was just like, what? Like they actually want to use it? Like, are you serious? Yeah. And yeah, they were like, they had a few notes going back and forth. They're like, we want you to change this, that, and the other and um, stuff like that. And then they wanted to send it to another producer to do some ad prod on and all this. Um, and then, yeah, like before I know it, I'm, like watching the track being premiered at Wembley to like God knows how, like millions of people. Um, and it's an actual thing. Like 
And like that, like I honestly didn't think it was going to happen up until the day that I saw it being premiered at Wembley. Um, And when that happened, I was like, okay, this is happening. Like this is actually coming out. Like what the, like it was crazy, man. An important note for anyone dealing with majors. Yeah. Nothing has happening until like the actual day. If somebody says, hey, we're going to sign you to do a contract. Don't tell anyone yet. Wait until you sign that contract wait until you dot the i's and cross the t's i'm telling you it is it is uh it's kind of just the music industry i'd say sure. um but yeah definitely with majors it's kind of yeah up until that point you can't really take anything um you kind of just have to take it with a grain of salt going back to kind of where you were at at this point when you you know got this discussion with the label that kind of connected you to being able to produce that song co-produce that song for steve aoki you know, you were producing kind of more on your own, but you didn't have that much traction. But because they liked your music so much, that's what helped you start to get those connections and be able to have that big co-production, which I think really opened doors for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it absolutely did. I think like from that point, I started in my head being like, damn, I need to like start thinking about more original music. Um, and so Nick, who was kind of working with me at that point then, and another um, person called Thomas, who's still on my team as well, they started helping me look for vocals for original music. And um, Thomas was, or still is, from Norway. (laughs) (laughs) Jesus. So Thomas is uh, from Norway, and there's a company in Norway called Stealth, um, who Thomas had good connects with, and... He sent him an email and he was like, we've got this this guy who's just done the um, like Louis Tomlinson, Steve Aoki record. Have you got any top lines that maybe he could mess around with or anything like that? Um, and they sent over like a couple of top lines and one of them was uh, a tune called Rich Kids. And I really loved this song. Yeah. Um, so I took the acapella and I like built an entire beat around it and like, um, it didn't take me very long. It took me maybe like a day or two to get to where I kind of envisioned the track going. And I was also in a lot of sessions at this stage too. So Nick knew a lot of people that I could go into, like who would work with me on like a, a songwriter level. So I was doing a lot of sessions for other people's projects. And then like the odd time I'd have a session for my project too. Um, so I had this Rich Kids tune going and loads of other tunes going too. And suddenly there was like some label interest, like Psycho. And um, there was like Warner from the same label that I had sort of been in contact with a couple of years before. And a few other labels, um, including like Universal, that were kind of interested in my project and what I was doing. And they had heard the music I was making in the studio and they were interested in what I was doing and all of that. So kind of word of mouth at that point, right? Yeah, it really was because there was there was no music really coming out. There was like remixes coming out and stuff, but um, there was no original music really um, apart from like maybe some sample stuff. That kind of goes back to your perception of digital farm animals earlier. Like who is this guy yeah. that doesn't have that many streams and not that many followers, but knows everyone? I think a lot of people forget yeah. how many of those faces are in the industry. Yeah, no, it's so true. The guy, who was I looking up this morning? Ricky Reed. Do you know about him? 
No, I don't. He's that. So he's just, yeah, pretty big producer. He has a group called Wallpaper, but he did like a couple of Jason Drulo songs not too long ago. But just like one of those guys that like most people haven't really heard of, but has just produced for so many freaking people. Like from like Leon Bridges to Maroon 5, Kesha, Halsey, like kind of everyone. Oh, wow. And, you know, if you went on his Insta, you would be like, oh, he's just like a music producer. But you would not understand how big these people really are because how much of the industry is being around is kind of like being that next person up is huge. Yeah, I think like I learned a lot about the behind the scenes of the music industry in that year and the year after Just Hold On came out because quite a lot of people were interested in what I was doing, uh, like songwriters and other producers and stuff and wanted me to work on their projects. And I found out what it was like to like write for people and um, I had sort of kind of started to work with digital farm animals to like a, he was kind of like mentoring me to an extent. Like he was teaching me how to write lyrics and how to like the more songwriter side of music, yeah. because I was kind of just like this studio production geek at this stage. I didn't really know about writing songs. I didn't think I was sort of capable of that. Yeah. Um, but at this stage, um, I was getting really into that. Like I was, I was really like intrigued by this side of music that I, I had never ever seen before, never been a part of. Would you say you were more personally interested in it, or like professionally? Like I need this in order for my career, or is it just like, hey, I'm interested in this, I want to do it? I'd say like a li- little bit about because um, it's more definitely more personal because yeah. I do feel like it's easier to get songs for your project if you're writing them yourself. So that from a professional standpoint is like, obviously that's the case. But personally, I wanted to be able to write my own songs. Like I wanted to be able to write about what I wanted and I didn't want to just like get sent songs from people or um, this, that and the other. So yeah, it was definitely like really intriguing for me because I had kind of put myself into this situation where like one day I had never like written a song before, like lyrically. And then the next day I'm like in with a songwriter, like suggesting melodies and suggesting words. And it's this whole new world, like straight away. So it was very intriguing, like really, really intriguing. So I think I'd like to move into production at some point. So at least on my end, I want to try my best to kind of like wrap up what you've talked about in terms of getting to where you are right now. Yeah. You know, throughout, it seems like you've been working your ass off with everything, hustling for yourself, never really being satisfied and, you know, throughout it all, really focusing on perfecting your craft. It seems like if you like didn't feel like you had the demos that were needed or, you know, you were getting rejected by labels, you took that and thought, hey, I need to get better at my craft. I need to polish that. And in the meantime, you yeah. were gaining some kind of organic attention. You were putting your music out there. You were hustling for yourself in terms of posting in Facebook groups, Reddit, whatever that is. But at the same time, your music was good enough that labels were naturally reaching out to you. You said you had that earlier manager that naturally reached out to you. And then all those things just kind of bubbled up to get you to a point now where it's a bit easier to be able to like promote market and create music. Yeah, I think like with everything I just mentioned, sort of the like all the songwriting stuff, um, whilst all, all of that was going on, like there was definitely label interest. Um, and then at like a certain point, Nick said, OK, like let's let's start meeting these labels yeah. and like maybe we could sign a deal at some point. And we did, we started meeting the labels and like, then like after 
like a month or two, I signed with literally my like dream label at Universal. So like it did get me to that point. And I do think that like just nurturing all of those things. And as you said, the organic reach and the things that people don't talk about behind the scenes mm-hmm. sort of got me to that point um, where I could, yeah, sort of get sort of have like that team or whatever, like get to that sort of goal. I don't know. I think an important thing to note is like when, even when you were getting that, um, like just hold on co-production, it's not like you had this big established career. You were networking, you were hustling, even though like you, I don't know, maybe didn't feel like you had the clout that all these other artists had. Yeah. And I think that's actually really important to mention because there's producers out there that are listening to this podcast that are going to be like, yeah, he's saying these things, but like, I can't do that. Like, and the truth is anyone can do that. And you kind of have to, unless you're like a generational talent, like a flume, you have to. You do. But I think like those opportunities are there for the taking, whether you have 20 followers or 20,000 followers. Like the thing I love about the internet and the thing I love about being able to just post music so freely is that you could get like a hundred plays on your song, but one of those plays could be an A&R at Universal or one of those plays could be the next person that's going to propel your career to your next goal. So it is kind of like a cool way to think about it. And I think it's what got me through days where I was getting like a hundred streams and like, or whatever, you know, like those thoughts did get me sort of motivated for, I don't know, it's just a cool thought. And I think people should know that. I mean, I think that's a big thing in terms of motivation. I forgot what book I read this in, but one of the things that helps you to stay motivated for a long period of time are all these tiny wins. And, you know, I think even for you, you talked about your first ever release on that Bandcamp only label. Like looking back, that wasn't like the turning point for your career, but even mentally to be like, hey, like I can kind of run with the big dogs a little bit. Like I feel like I've had that in my experience a little bit too. Like the first time that I got a release on Spotify's New Music Friday, I was like, cool, I can kind of chill. Like I know I'm at least somewhat in the ballpark and somewhat belong here. And it's like nice to have those things throughout. Yeah. And use those to help you, you know, propel you further. 100%. And I would say going back on one of the earlier points you made about constantly striving for more and constantly um, upgrading your goals daily, I think it's so important because you can get to a point where you are like, okay, cool, I I can chill now Um, because I got that new music Friday or because I got like, because Tiesto played my song you kind of feel a bit of relief. You're like, okay, like that's pretty cool. Like I must be at least somewhat decent. Yeah. Um, but then I think you do have to like in the back of your mind say it is cool, but now I need to aim for more. And that kind of encourages you to kind of just continue striving and um, yeah, striving for more. Let that validate you, but also let it motivate you to do more. I forgot 100%, who I was listening yeah. to, but I think it was like a dubstep producer and they said when they got their first release on UKF, they're like, this is it. I'm on UKF. Everything's amazing. So they like yeah. released it and then they like didn't produce for a month and nobody reached out to them. And they're like, oh, like I, I didn't make it. Like, cool. You got that UKF. Yeah, because What's next? Th- those things. Yeah. Because those things are like goals when you're coming up and then you get there and you're like, damn, like that was one of my biggest goals yeah. and I've got there now. And then you're like, damn, like what do I do now? Yeah. And then there's a, a point where you're like, what do I actually do now? <laughs> um, and then, uh, 
And then, yeah, you kind of realize that like momentum's falling or whatever it is. And then like, you got to just like, can't like, can't the way I like think about it is you can't constantly have to have like somewhat of a game plan totally. going on. And um, which is why I'm like so visual with what I do. Like I, I'm always writing down my goals. I'm writing down like every day what I want to accomplish that day. I've got this vision board right above me with like things that I can physically come into the studio and look at and be like, okay, that's what I'm working towards. Um, and I think all of these things really do help you stay on the right track and don't fall off and like, don't sort of get lazy and these sort of things. That's a crucial point for every single person listening to this podcast. We kind of talked about the motivation and I think part of motivation is keeping what you want in perspective and right in front of you. When I'm sitting in my DAW trying to figure out what the hell is going on in the serum preset that I can't get to work, my end goal, which is at least for me to be able to release music and play it out live, is so far away because I'm just like in my own little studio so deep into a synth. But keeping those things in perspective helps motivate you and like helps you just work harder to get you to where you want to be faster. Yeah, perspective is huge. Like perspective is a big word in music. I'll also give you another word. And that word is perseverance, because there's a lot of times in music where you will feel like kind of giving up or you'll get shot down a ton of times. Like, I'm sure you've experienced this a ton of times. And it's just about, again, going back to these, like my vision board and this, that and the other. These are things that I I feel everyone should have in place because you might get shot down and you might, these things might happen to you. And in terms of motivation, you'll be at a low, but you'll then look at these things and you'll think like, why did I even start doing this? Like, why did I put that picture up there of um, that the main stage of ultra? Why did I put that picture up there of the billboard top 100 logo? And that's because one day I want to be on the billboard top 100. One day I want to play um, ultra main stage and you instantly just rejuvenate any of yeah. that motivation. You instantly are back on track. Um, so I do think perseverance is a big, big one because like 99.999% of the time, every, like you'll get shot down for things. So um, I don't, I don't know of any producer. I'm sure there's one out there that has never gotten shot <laughs> down for something, but I don't know any producer that has not got shot down for at least something in their career. So it's natural. Everyone has to deal with it. Even your favorite artists get tracks rejected from their favorite labels. Like it happens. And instead of expecting it to go away, just learn how to better deal with that rejection and then, you know, channel that into something more positive. A hundred percent. And also it will get easier to deal with that rejection. Yeah. Um, When it first happens to you, you feel quite emotional. And I think there's a book I read that was actually quite good about this, um, about uh, thinking emotionally and thinking practically. I think it was called The Chimp Paradox or something. Um, but these are things that you can implement into your mindset in sort of any indus- industry. And I think, yeah, just after a while, it will get easier. You know, like I remember the first time I got shut down, I literally wanted to cry for like three days straight. <laughs> And now I get shut down every day for like an idea or for like like a top line idea or for like a like a show idea or just a brand idea or anything. And I'm just like, okay, on with the next thing. Let's go. Let's let's keep the train going. Like it's funny. I feel like in order to last in this industry, you have to develop a ego to a point. 
And you go to a point where you're like, so, you know, label rejects you and you're like, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going to find somebody else or screw you. I'm going to make another track that's better. 100%. But not letting yeah. that ego get to a Kanye point, as we were actually talking about before yeah. this uh, podcast. Well, I was going to suggest that, like, although Kanye is like an absolute nutter sometimes, <laughs> I do think the fact that he has this ego and the fact that he is so confident in himself has played a part in his success. I mean, it's allowed him to do what he's done. To an extent, you do have to learn how to grow and kind of create this ego that you can manage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's a big one, an ego that you can manage. Um, I do think like let your ego control you to a point where you have lost your personality and the person you are. And that's going to be bordering on like some sort of mental illness type thing. <laughs> um, but I do think... What you said is like managing it, uh, if you can, is like really, really important because um, you never want to lose track of like who you are when you when you are like thinking these ways because you kind of can. You can you can get to a point where you're like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do this. And like you get so like embedded in the work and like working towards that, you that you kind of lose track of like why you're doing these things or what like it stemmed from or anything like that, which is like really easy position to get into. Um, I think, I mean, I think that just goes back to like the perspective and immediate motivation that we've been talking about throughout this a hundred percent. Yeah. So I think with that, let's shift gears a little bit. We'd love to talk a little bit more about production. First question I have for you is how do you approach starting a new track? I know you talked about sessions and other things, but when you're working by yourself at your studio, what does that process look like? Is there like a set workflow that you use or do you feel like it changes every time? Um, it completely changes every time. There's <laughs> like, there's times where like I'll have, I'll be doing a remix for instance, and I will just loop the acapella and I'll just jam on the keyboard under it. And um, then suddenly I have the remix done like a few hours later or whatever, um, or a yeah. few days later. But then there's times where like, I'll just have uh, a vocal idea in my head in the shower or whatever. And then I'll get out of the shower and I'll put the vocal down and then the whole track will spawn from that. Um, and then, yeah. you know, there's collaborative times where like you're in the studio with a uh, singer, songwriter, or a top liner or um, somebody else. And um, you're just kind of jamming and you're coming up with ideas and it's a really sort of inspiring workplace. And then suddenly you have a song um, yeah. I think it changes all the time, man. Like completely changes all the time. It normally starts with chords though. It's like, it does normally start with chords for me personally. And then after that, I'd look at drums and then sort of arrangement. And it does normally st start with verse chords. And then I'll move into like, I'll kind of stem from there into like pre-choruses and like the chorus and all of this sort of stuff. So... Another question that I wanted to ask you is listening throughout your entire catalog. I really like the way that you layer sounds and textures. Not a big surprise. Layering is a problem that a lot of producers struggle with knowing when they need a layer, what types of layers to go for. So I'd love to hear it. Like, do you have an approach for layering? Is it really just experimentation? And uh, do you have any advice for people that struggle with this? There's kind of two things that I've come down to myself when it comes to layering um, in my workflow that works for me personally. And those are sounds and levels. First of all, it's getting the sounds right. It's getting 
like being practical about it what do you what what sound do you want on the top end like what is the actual do you want like a bell sound for the attack or like what is the actual thing you're looking for instead of just mindlessly like scrolling through sounds try and be practical about it and try and like think about it more logically and be like okay if there's a metallic sound i want then i'll go for a bell or i'll go for like you know like a xylophone or whatever it is um marimba um um for mids as well you think the same way um and then after that like levels like eqing um making sure all the levels are correct in each of those sounds um and making sure they all have their own space um and then yeah i'd say after that too like trying to glue all those sounds together um giving them all their own space in the spectrum and yeah i think like that's like that's essentially where I would start with uh, with layering. It would be like sounds you use and uh, levels. Just very simple, but I do think it's um, often uh, overlooked, and people just kind of go a bit crazy with that. But I think whenever I teach layering, I always talk about why are you adding something when somebody says yeah. I need more layers, all these different things. I'm like, okay, what is it missing? Is it missing yeah. high end? Is it missing mids? Is it missing width? Is it missing a mono image? This, if exactly, you come man. into it with that in mind, it is way easier to find the sound that you're going for and you're not going to waste time. And kind of like you said earlier, if everything's in its own space, that's going to kind of make mixing easier too. If you've got a low layer man. and a mid layer and a high layer, you don't have to do as much EQing, save just you know the EQ on the actual individual channels because everything's already in its own space. Exactly. Um, and also, I'll say that like often the the greatest producers are the ones that use the least amount of sounds when they're yeah. layering. I think it's the producers that use the right sounds and know how to layer those sounds are the better producers, in my opinion. That's, yeah, that's what I've often come across. So, what do you feel like in your experience has helped you figure out what the right sounds are? It's a big question, but no, I, I think I've got a very very sort of easy response to that and i think um what i mentioned earlier about starting the youtube channel and remaking tracks that was huge for me to finally kind of understand what sounds work for certain genres or um because i was i was remaking everything from like future house to big room to trance to drum and bass to pop music um i was doing absolutely everything just so that i could like train my ear all across the spectrum of music to um, to kind of like develop the ear for those sounds in all of these genres. And I think like I would highly suggest people that are starting out to remake tracks because it, it just helped me so much with just sounds in general, like what, what sounds should be used. And there's sounds in, in pop that people wouldn't think about using in like Future House, but have been using Future House and sound amazing. So like, it's really about broadening your spectrum uh, in terms of like all those sounds. And yeah, I, I would definitely suggest remaking tracks. I think that's critical. I get that a lot from newer producers that are like, hey, I like have all these different influences, but I just want to produce this one style. I'm like, don't, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you only yeah. produce that one style. Even if like that is the one that you want to do, you're going to become a better producer the wider variety of music you listen to and learn how to produce. And in your case, you say remake. And I think that's huge because you understand what's going on in the space of a mix so much better, both from like yeah. a horizontal and a linear perspective. What are all the things that go into a track? 
And it more than anything, just kind of forces your ear and trains your ear to be able to listen better to music, which is going to help you produce and, you know, which is going to help you produce. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it is like training your ear is super important. So in general, when you're approaching getting all those layers, I guess we can dive into a bit more of sound design. Are you pretty much synth-based or sample-based or kind of a combination of both? Uh, it's pretty much a combination of both. I might like find a certain sound uh, like on Splice or a sample pack um, uh, on a whim, and then I'll use that. Or like most of the time these days, I'm synthesizing my own sounds and that's kind of how I'm going about it. But, you know, like the odd time I will find a, a sample that I'll use in a record um, or like layer with another sound or whatever. What are you using for sound design right now? I'm using a lot of Serum right now, um, but I actually only, I'm kind of late to the party. I only downloaded it like quite recently, okay. <laughs> like maybe maybe six months ago now, actually. But uh, I'm still kind of getting used to it and stuff. But it's definitely the the my favorite synth I've ever used. And before that, I was using Silence. So, like, it's a big step up. Um, But, uh, no, honestly, like, yeah, I feel like I could create, like, pretty much everything I needed within Silent. And um, I also use Spire a lot. So I kind of went from uh, Silent to Spire to to Serum. So that's kind of how it went. But What helped you get to a point where you felt comfortable designing sounds from scratch? Again, I'm going to say this remakes, like, honestly, like a lot of, like there'd be times where I would challenge myself that I wouldn't use any samples and that I would just, um, make everything from scratch from kick drums to like, even like all of my percussion was made using synths. Um, and then like, I was, I got to a point where I like really challenged myself in that regard where I was, I was mainly just using synths. Um, and that's kind of how I developed, um, I guess, use for it i don't know i just kind of like yeah challenge myself in that regard with the remakes yeah i think that's a huge thing understanding what your weak points are as a producer and if you don't know what those are talk to somebody if you have like a mentor even just a friend it's really important to understand that so you can get better at it yeah looking back do you feel like there are any techniques or concepts that have really helped level up your production i think there's so many people listening to this that are at that intermediate stage and can't really break through the ceiling in order to get to a point where they're getting signed to their favorite label. So looking back, were there anything in terms of like tools, techniques, or maybe just like a mindset shift that were aha moments that helped you, you know, make your music sound more professional? I can't really think of any like aha moments. Yeah. Um, I will say that like, there's a lot of music that I hear that's like, I, I, I always come back to the idea of levels and I feel like just it's such a simple, it's such a simple idea, but I feel like people often overlook it and they look at it too com like in a more complex way than they need to. Yeah. Um, and it all it, it honestly just all comes down to the right levels. Like and I think, yeah, that if there was an aha moment for me, it was definitely focusing on levels and focusing on on a mixing standpoint, like that fundamental idea of just like balancing levels and making sure they're they're correct and then moving on to compression and then moving on to EQing or you know like I just think levels are so important man and it's it's often super overlooked we had um I think it was Fitch on a previous podcast episode when asked a similar question about like what it takes to get a professional sound and he said something along the lines of in reality it's just doing the very fundamentals very well so like whatever the basic things are it's like 
Wevel's EQ compression and reverb will get you 95% of the way there. A hundred percent. It's just like really, really focusing on all those fundamental techniques. Focusing on those fundamental techniques and cross-referencing with records that are out there that you love the sound of. And by the way, there's no like way to make music. There's no like standard for music. Like you can make music in whatever way you want. So always be referencing what you like. Don't reference what what you think the industry standard is or anything like that. Always be referencing what you like because that's what it comes down to is like you want to create a product that you're proud of and that reflects you as an artist. So So I had a follow-up question, which I think I already know the answer to, but just being honest, your mix down slap, would you say the reason for that just goes back to those fundamentals or do you think there's more behind the scenes that has helped you get to a point where you've got like an industry standard, really professional big mix down? Um, well, thank you. Um, <laughs> I I wouldn't like... I would never think that like I'm decent at mixed down. Like honestly, like <laughs> like going back on the point of the like we spoke about the very start, it's like I genuinely don't think my mixed downs are good. And like I'm always striving to make them better and stuff. But then like I get comments like that from you, which by the way, thank you. Um it's like it's it's kind of blows my mind. But like I would say definitely like essentially it all comes down to the levels and that's what i found works for me um, and it works for the music i create and it works for um sort of the references that i have for my music and i feel like it, like if you look at calvin and you look at all these guys like they, they'd be my references you know and I, I generally think they they focus more on levels more than like in the fundamentals of everything than you know most things i don't know but that, that's what my answer would be, is, is definitely those fundamentals. I don't know why, but a lot of producers overcomplicate things, myself included, but they think yeah. there are all these like little secrets or they'll like post on Reddit, what's like that one hack that's going to help me get on spinning? Yeah. Like they're searching for that one thing. And I guess, according to you, that one thing's levels, but. Well, yeah, not just levels, but kind of just the fundamentals, I'd say. Yeah. But no, dude, I, I had that question too. And I was like, coming like. I don't know when I was in my early stages or whatever. And I was like, what's that like one thing that all these big <laughs> producers have? And like, there is no thing. It yeah. doesn't exist. It's just training your ear. It's getting the fundamentals down. It's uh, like honing your craft. And like, I don't know. It's just, it's just time really. Like it comes down to that's all it comes down to is just time. Whenever people ask me like, what's like the one thing or like, what are the things that separate the people that make it and don't it's time. It really is. At the end of the day, the number one most defining factor is time. So whatever you can yeah. do to find all of that time as much as you can do, like you said earlier, in that gap year, you were doing 16 hour days and like within, you know, six to eight months, you had your first release and there's something to be said about yeah. that. It, you know, you didn't have, at least from my, from talking today, you didn't have these like special attributes. You weren't this, you know, classically trained composer or anything like that. You just spent a lot of time on it and really wanted to get good. Yeah. I think like there's something to be said about like, um, I think there's some saying or something, but it's like something about people that work hard and people that are kind of like book smart or whatever, you know, like in, yeah. in school, it was always the people that worked hard and worked their asses off that got the good, like the good grades and stuff. And the people that were naturally book smart, in my experience, kind of fizzled off and became stoners or became <laughs> this, that and the other. And it's like, it's like, like 
I don't know what the saying is. It's it's a good one, but I can't remember. <laughs> um, but it's it's something along those lines. It's like if you work your ass off, that's all you need, really. Like yeah, um, hard hard work beats talent, or it's something like that. I don't know, but I love that. Yeah. So I guess to kind of close things out, we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast. So if somebody just started out, just downloaded DAW, and they're getting into production, what kind of advice would you give to them in order to ensure that they have like the best success and chance? Of success um i would just say make sure you're you're always having fun with it um i'd say when you when you get to a point where you're not really having fun with what you're doing maybe just switch it up maybe start working on a new genre i would say just because you have like this idea of where you want to be and you're suddenly getting closer to it but having less fun i would say still switch it up at least what i've found is i make the best music when i'm having fun and i feel like i'm having fun with it when in my experience i feel like balanced mm-hmm. um in all aspects of my life actually like um i'm I'm balanced in terms of like so my social life um i'm balanced in terms of how much work i'm doing all this stuff is really important yeah um, i'm balanced in terms of like exercise and health and when i find that balance that's when i'm like most productive um i'm kind of like trailing all over the gaff here no, i don't that's... actually know what point i'm getting to but <laughs> i would definitely that's... say that balance is important i mean that's super sure. important and thinking about how your life outside of production feeds into your life as a producer i do think like there's been times where i have worked 16 hours a day or even more, to be honest. Yeah. And like after a while, I I get writer's block. I feel not that motivated. I feel like I'm not having fun, um, and I don't know what to do. You know, people like in that situation are kind of kind of stress out because they're like, yeah. like fuck, like what do I do? Like music's my life. I'm making it 16 hours a day, and I kind of feel like that's the reason. It's like yeah, the reason we get into those stagnant positions is because we are. It is our life, and I think balance in my experience has sort of forced me to be in a position where like I'm, I've kind of structured my day and like I'm making music for a certain amount of time and then I'm going and cooking dinner or cooking lunch and then hanging out with my friends um, and then going to the gym or going for a run or whatever, yeah. and socializing or whatever it is that, that you enjoy doing. Um, and then I'll come back and like, I'll get more done that day than I would have if I was just sitting there for 16 hours straight doing stuff because I would have gotten into a mental block. Yeah. Um, so I would say focus on balance in your life and make sure you, you have that. I would also say, um, as mentioned earlier, networking is a huge one. Make sure you're networking, you're bouncing your ideas off other producers. And, um, I would also say, Actually, yeah, that that's all I would say. <laughs> I don't, I can't think of another one, but yeah, just have fun with it, man. Have fucking fun with it. It's, at the end of the day, it's music. Like it's it's not a fucking real job. We're just we're literally just like making sounds. So yeah. like, just have fun with it and make sure you're having fun with it. Because when you stop having fun with it, what's the point? All right, I love that. So with that, we will wrap things up for this episode. Everyone listening, you can find Jay Pryor's music in the description of this episode. So this podcast is just about over. Definitely give that a look. Jamie, it's been great chatting with you and appreciate you being on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, man.